and the rest of us can go to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. <coughs> Here we go. Now I actually taught a lesson on this, or a few verses from this chapter last year. Um, I don't know who of you remember that or not. It's not important today because I'm going to give you some of the same background that I gave last time because I think it's important to know what the uh, historical context is of this uh, epistle that Peter wrote. And now, it's important to realize while you're reading this epistle that the people that Peter was writing this epistle to was undergoing some immense persecution in this time. This epistle was written around about 64 or 65 AD. Now, in 64 AD, in July that, of that year, um, actually Rome uh, was devastated by a huge fire, and it took six days to bring this fire under control. Now, this was a, in a time that the citizens of Rome were actually very suspicious of the Christians that were living there. You know, after these people, this, these Christians got saved, they obviously behaved differently, you know, as is the case for anybody that got saved since the resurrection of Christ. So they, they associated themselves with the Jews in some way, and we know that the Jews never really won any popularity contests in the world. And these people also refused to take part in all of the religious ceremonies and rituals of the Romans. Now, this really obviously made them stand out. Because you will remember that Rome was really no different than any other pagan nation that you can find back then or, or right now as far as religion is concerned. They had this pantheon of gods that they worshipped. They had a god of war. They had a god of love, a god of thunder, a god of the wind, a god of the underworld, and on and on and on it goes. They really had a god for everything that was in charge in some way of something. And so... If you, for instance, wanted to have good fortunes during war, you would pray and bring sacrifices to the God of war. If your wife left you, you would go to the God of love and bring a sacrifice there. You get the picture. That's basically how they lived their lives. And this was such an integral part of the Roman culture of the time. It was woven into their cultural fabric to do these things. It was just something that everybody did. And nobody would even bat an eye if somebody would take part in that, because it was almost expected of you to take part in these rituals and ceremonies. And so, when somebody got saved, they then stopped doing all of these things. You know, they would get taught and they would know that these idols are actually just figments of the people's imaginations. They're nothing. They, they can't do anything. They don't have any power. I mean, how else if you've met with the living God? So these Christians were going against the culture or the very essence of what it meant to be a Roman, a Roman citizen. And they would start to have their own meetings, just like we have here today. They would have church, just their own meetings. And the Romans had no idea what was going on in, in these meetings. So rumors started to spread that the Christians were busy with all sorts of evil and underhanded things. Maybe they want to overthrow the government or this or that. And so the suspicion and the hatred against the Christians grew and grew and grew in, in this time. You know, and I think we know this in, the, in, the, in this country, um, 
as good as any, but that people tend to hate that which they don't understand. If you have a cultural difference or something, people tend to hate that person just because of that difference. And yeah, that's, that's how men are. And so when the emperor of Rome, who was Nero at this time, I think if I remember correctly, he was about 27 years old in this time, um, when he wanted somebody to blame for this destruction of Rome, you know, a big part was destroyed by this fire, and somebody must have lit this fire, somebody must have started it, then he found the perfect scapegoat in the Christians. And he somehow started to spread the word that they were responsible. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure how that happened. But folks, this fire really was a big deal to the Romans. It really was. The, the people were angry. They lost everything in this fire. You can imagine shops were burned down, houses and, and so on. Uh, people even died in, in this fire. The people were angry. They wanted answers. So Nero channeled this anger of the people towards, this, towards the Christians. And it's not just uh, me saying so because I'm on the side of the Christians. You know, the Roman historian Tacitus actually wrote the following about this. He said, Therefore, to stop the rumor, so there was a rumor going on that maybe the emperor actually started this fire because this emperor loved building. He just loved it. So they thought, okay, maybe he wanted to, destro- wanted to destroy a part of Rome so that he could build again because he just loved that. So, therefore, to stop the rumor, he, that's the emperor, falsely charged with guilt and punished with the most fearful tortures, the persons commonly called Christians, who were hated for their enormities. Accordingly, first those were arrested who confessed they were Christians. Next, on their information, so these Christians that were um, arrested first, they gave information on other Christians, where you can find them and so on, probably while being tortured uh, for this information. Next, on their information, a vast multitude were convicted. Not so much on the charge of burning the city as of hating the human race. That was their charge. You hate the human race. So an immense persecution broke out against the Christians in the city and in the other regions um, or in other regions of the Roman Empire. And then this is the backdrop for this epistle. Peter writes to the believers that got scattered as a result of this Uh, persecution that was going on in various regions that we can read about in verse 1 of chapter 1. But so this epistle gives anybody that is going through some sort of, some form of persecution or, or suffering or hard times, it gives them some great guidance on how to handle it, how to react to it. What should we do if this happens? Now we are obviously not suffering violent forms of persecution here, of, here in South Africa. I think the most violent is somebody that laughs at you, um, at least for now. But we know that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. That's Second Timothy 3 and verse 16. So it, it will do us good to r- still read this epistle and to study it, even though we're not in this exact same circumstances. Since This epistle is not just profitable for those that are going through persecution, but it's also very profitable for just general Christian life. So today, we will just be looking at a few verses in uh, in 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, and we will specifically start at verse 17, but I just want to fill you in again on what, what happened up to verse 17. You know, 
So up to there, Peter was turning the focus of the readers of this epistle, he was turning their eyes away from their current situation, this persecution that was going on, and he was turning them towards God. You can read that all throughout uh, chapter 1, chapter 1 there. And he's turning their eyes towards their eternal hope, the hope that we have that one day God is going to change all of this. He's going to come and fetch us and... um, this life is just something temporal. It, it, it's, it's, going to, it's going to end in the end anyway. He says in verse 3 that it is a lively hope that, that we are hoping on. Our inheritance is something that is incorruptible and it's something reserved for us in heaven. And he touches on the fact that our salvation is safe and secure. That's important to know while you're going through a trial. Uh, well, even if you're not, but especially while you're going through a trial because you start wondering, why me? Why me? Well, your salvation is safe and secure because it is kept by the power of God. There is no way that we are losing that. I mean, try ripping my salvation away from God. I dare you. <laughs> right? That's not happening. And then between verses 13 and 16, Peter gives them this first admonition Uh, which is that they are to leave behind all of their sins, all of the stuff that they did before they got saved, and that now they should be living holy lives. And and he goes on about that. And then that brings us then to verse 17, which we're going to read today. After I got a drink. 1 Peter 1 and verse 17. He says, And if ye call on the Father who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. So let's just stop there. Let's just take that first phrase. If you call on the Father. This is just another way of saying if you're saved. (laughs) If you are saved, then you are calling on the Father. You know, saved people are actually the only people that can call Him Father. I've spoken to many people that are actually under the impression that well, everybody are children of God. Folks, that's simply not true. That, that is not true. We are not all by default the children of God. And that's a very important thing to realize. Very, very important. Because some people really are living under this impression. And they think because we are all ch- children of God, then He will just basically wink at everybody's sins and He won't judge us you know, the way that He says He would. That's at least how their argument goes. Just go speak to a few people, you will find that. But folks, that's a lie. That's a, that's a blatant lie. And I'm not sure when the de- devil was actually able to pass along this lie to mankind and, and when they actually started to believe this, but it has been very successful in silencing people's consciences. Very, very successful. Let's look at a few verses about this. You can keep your place in First Peter 1. Let's go to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, not 1st John, John chapter 1. <laughs> John chapter 1. Now, in this chapter, John talk, talks about um, Jesus and how he has always been God, how he is the creator, how he came into this world, and this world didn't know him at all. And, folks, that's just shocking that the world didn't even recognize its own creator when he came into this world. In verse 11, he says that Jesus came unto his own, own, but his own knew him not. 
Um, look, at, look at verse 11 there. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. They did not receive him. But then he contrasts this, these people that did receive him between those and, and those that actually ignored him. Look at verse 12. But as many as received him, to them gave he power, look at this, to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. It is those that are born of God that actually become the sons of God. Now, you can't become something if you already were that thing. You know, if you're a policeman and you say, you know, one day I would like to become a policeman. No, man, you're already a policeman. You can't become one if you're already a policeman. It's just a silly thing to say. And it's equally silly to say that, well, I am a son of God, but you know what? If I receive Jesus, I will become a son of God. That just that doesn't make sense. It would be stupid of John to say such a thing if we all were by default children of God already. And we are not. All men are not the sons of God. Look at Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. In this chapter, Paul is actually busy explaining the purpose of the law and how it is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. But then in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 26, he says the following. He says, For ye are all the children of God. Okay, that's where most people stop. (laughs) You are all the children of God. How? By faith in Christ Jesus. So clearly, being a son of or a child of God is contingent on something. It, It depends on something. You become a child of God by faith in Christ Jesus. And that's the only way. This, this is part of the grace of God that he bestowed upon us. You know, John said in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1, it's one of the verses we got this morning. Um, I think that was the only one. No, we got two. But anyway, he said, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Okay? That actually goes back to John chapter 1 again. But, folks, being a child of God is a sign of God's love toward us. That he makes us his children and that we can actually call him Father. Look at Galatians 4. You're still in Galatians. Galatians 4 and verse 4. He says, But when the fullness of of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now first off, I I want to uh, turn your eyes again back to uh, verse 5. He says, To redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. You're adopted as a son if you are saved. It's not a birthright to be a son of God. It is by the grace of God, through faith in His Son alone, that we are adopted as God's children. I hope that makes sense. But then again, verse 6, he says, And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So yes, if you're saved, absolutely. Call Him Father. He is your Father. Paul says here that you can call Him Abba, Father. That's a very intimate and loving title. To, to talk to him to. 
It's like when you call your earthly father daddy or papa in Afrikaans, you know. He is your father. And he bought you. And he adopted you so that you can have this, this loving and intimate relationship with him. And folks, I agree with John when he said, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we might be called the sons of God. That is, that is simply amazing. It is, it's just amazing. Let's go back to 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter 1 and verse 17. He says, And if ye call on the Father, this is the next bit, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, Okay, so now, even though he is your father, even though you can have this intimate and special relationship with him, keep in mind, he's also your judge. He is your judge. You know that it's coming, right? The judgment. Um, I hope you do. You know, this is another reason that, that Peter is saying in this context that we should be living holy lives. Because God is going to judge every single man according to what he has done. Hold your place here again. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'll just show you this. Uh, 2 Corinthians and chapter 5. You know, some people have this notion that if you're saved, then you will not be judged anymore. But folks, if you've been coming to this church and, and you've gone through the basic Bible studies or just been sitting here in the Bible studies, you will know that God is going to judge every single person. Every single one, whether they are saved or not, they will be judged. It's just that there are different judgments that people go to, depending on whether they are saved or not. All right. Now, Peter is talking about saved people here. He's writing this epistle to saved people, so we're going that direction right now. Uh, he's specifically referring to the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. You see that? We must all appear before that seat, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Folks, there is none of us that will not stand before his seat of judgment. Every single one of us will appear before him, and it will happen one by one. Now, this, this judgment is set to happen shortly after the rapture actually happened. You know, when the rapture is when the Lord comes and He's going to gather us all in the clouds, you know, saved people that are dead or alive. He's going to gather us in the clouds and take us to heaven. And then sometime after that, we will appear before Him, one by one, single file. Now, I want to emphasize this. You need to understand that this judgment uh, is not a judgment that decides whether you're going to heaven or hell. It's not, Okay. We didn't read anything, and you can go check this context of 2 Corinthians 5. He's not talking about anything about hell there. Okay, this, this is not what is, go what is going on there. The judgment, or this judgment, is actually going to take place in heaven. And the only way that you can be, go to heaven <laughs> is by being saved. That's your ticket to that judgment, is by being saved. So at this judgment, you're going to give an account of everything that you did after you got saved whether you've done good things, like he says here at the end, whether it be good or bad, good things or bad things, you will give an account of that. Um, but everything that you have done, folks, will get its just reward. There's going to re be a reward, whether that's a good reward or a bad reward. We'll see. You know, the, the day that you got saved, 
actually a foundation was laid. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And we'll just look a little bit at this judgment, what's going to happen there. One Corinthians three and verse eleven. He says, For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So the foundation that was laid the day that you got saved is Jesus. And you cannot replace this foundation, you cannot um, destroy it, it is permanent. This is a permanent and solid foundation. And whether whatever you build upon this foundation never alters the structure of the foundation. It is solid, it's unmovable, and it's reliable. You cannot change this, this foundation. Look at verse 12. He says, Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. Okay, so there you have the categories of things that you can actually build on this foundation. First off, he, he, Paul mentions here gold, silver, and precious stones. If you go back to 2 Corinthians 5 that we looked at, that correlates with the good things that you've done after you got saved. That's building gold, silver, and precious stones. It's the things of eternal value. Now, I can't help but think of that ad, you know, diamonds are forever. You know, you know, precious stones, there you go. But it has eternal value, uh, the things that you've done, and that's the gold, silver, and precious stones. That's the things that really matter uh, to actually do in this life. And then in contrast, we have the wood, hay, and stubble. And that's then obviously the bad things that you've done um, in, in this life, as Second Corinthians 5 says. Now, the things that you've done that have actually, absolutely no value in this life, or eternal value rather, let me say that. And you know what those things are, you know, for you, as I know what those things are for me that we are doing and wasting our time on not investing eternally in eternal value. But folks, on this day of judgment, when we stand before our Lord and He, and he judges everything that we did in this life, everything will be brought out to be judged. Every single thing. Really, <laughs> everything. Look at verse 13 here. He says, uh, that's 1 Corinthians 3, right? He says, Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Excuse me. So, Everything that you, that you built on this solid foundation, which is Christ, all of it will go through fire. It will all be tried with fire and it will be burned. Um, nothing will escape. And if it survives this fire, Paul says here, that then you will receive reward. So if we look at this picture of the gold, the silver, and the precious stones, those are things that obviously don't get simply destroyed by fire. Okay, they actually get purified by fire. So... After this fire has subsided, then they will still remain exactly where they were on that foundation. And those are the good things that you did. And for that, you will receive reward, Paul says here. But now we have the wood and the hay and the stubble. And these are all things that burn very well. That's actually a great recipe for a good fire. Armand, if you're making the fire later for the braai, 
Would I stubble, man? That's, that's what you should use. <laughs> All right. But there will be nothing left of it after this, this fire is done with it. So you are not in danger of losing your salvation here. Okay, that, that's very important to real, realize. But when this fire burns this wood, hay, and stubble, Paul says you're going to suffer loss because that is what you invested in. And it's nothing. It gets blown away with the wind. It's gone. Now, like I said, you can't lose your salvation here. You will notice that the, salva- the foundation is not burnt. It's only the things built on this foundation that actually gets burned. So you're not in danger of losing it, and, but you are in danger, really in danger, of disappointing the Lord uh, when you stand before Him. And you will, potentially, you will lose your potential eternal rewards in this judgment. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 11, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Folks, it will definitely not be a fun day when the Lord judges you and you have nothing left to show for what you've done in this life. Uh, it's going to be a horrible day after everything gets burned off and it's gone. Now Peter tells us, yeah, you can go back to First Peter chapter 1, verse 17. Uh, he tells us that the Father is going to judge every man's work but he does that, like he says here, who without respect of persons judgeth ev- according to every man's work. Without respect of persons. That means it doesn't really matter who you are or what you are, what you think of yourself. Everybody's going to be judged exactly the same way. Every single one of us. So whether you're a rich businessman in this life or maybe you're a beggar, maybe you're a celebrity or whatever you may be, you will be judged the same way. You will be. One person won't have it easier than the other person. That's just how it's going to be. He does that without respect of persons. So that then helps us to understand who the Father is. He wants an intimate and personal relationship with us. That's we call on the Father. He wants that intimate personal relationship. But in that, you better remember that He is the one that is going to judge you. He's your judge. And he will do that impartially, without respect of persons. So the idea here is that if you are close to God and you have that intimate relationship with him and you know that he will judge you like anybody else, then you better be careful how you live your life. You really better be careful. Uh, That's why he says here, uh, look there at the end, he says, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. What is this fear? Now, best illustration I could think of, and I'm not very creative, but maybe you can think of something else. But my children, for instance, know that they can have a close relationship with me. At least I hope they know that. You know, they're welcome to come sit next to me. They're welcome to give me a nice hug. I love whenever I work at home, you know, during the day, I love just going to them, giving them a great big hug. That's just amazing. And they're also welcome to come and wrestle with me um, sometime. You know, Ben is getting big and he's getting strong and he surprises you. He does surprise attacks. He'll be a good ninja one day. But, <laughs> but they can do that without fearing that I will try to hurt them. Without fearing that, that somehow I would try to discourage them or be nasty with them or, or anything with that. They know they can trust me. They know that they can come to me if there is a problem. 
But then they also know that I will punish sinful behavior. I will. So they fear me. But they don't fear me in the sense of being afraid of me at all. That, that, that's not what, I, what we're talking about here. Rather, they respect me. They honor me because I am their father. And, and that is the sense of what Peter is talking about here, fearing God. You know, not because we are afraid of him and, and think that he is just looking for ways to punish us or to be mean to us or anything like that, but we should respect him. We should honor him. The Lord, we read in Hebrews, chastens everyone that he loves. And he is also going to judge us like we see here. He is going to judge us. So we should honor him. We should be mindful of this um, in this relationship that we have of him. We should honor him and respect him. But I also believe that as a Christian grows and he, and he gets to know the Father better and more and more intimately and has a better relationship with Him, he will also grow in his fear of God. Those two go together. And the more that he fears God, the less he will actually want to disappoint Him. And that will have the result of him honoring God and then also living a holy life. That's going to be the result of that. So the point of verse 17 then is this, in my own words, if I may. If you are saved and you have this intimate, loving relationship with God, keep in mind that He's also going to judge you one day. And He will have no favorites when He does this. So you better be careful about how you live before Him. Please be careful. So then this also goes along with verse 15 and 16, if you can read that later on. He says, Put, put off all those other things that you've done. Maybe we can read it now. Look, look at verse 14, sorry. Verse 14. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, That's the things that you did before you got saved, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Be holy, live a holy life. Don't do those things that you used to do um, back when you weren't saved. Now let's remember the context of all of this again. Okay? Like I said in the beginning, it's important to know what the context is here. Peter is writing to these Christians that are being persecuted, violently, horribly uh, persecuted. And what does he tell them? He tells them, live a holy life. Live a holy life. And remember that God is going to judge you one day according to how you live this life. That's interesting, you know. That's, I, I, th I would think that's a whole lot different than any advice that any other person would actually give you um, if you're in this situation of violent persecution because of your faith. Not because you're a criminal, because of your faith. You know, some people would say, no, you, you better go protest. You know, your rights are being violated. You, you better go protest, you know, burn some tires and whatnot. Um, <laughs> Others would go to the extreme and tell you, no, you, you better go fight the government because the government is rotten. If we can take them down, then we can restore peace again. That's not what Peter is telling them here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He tells them to keep their eyes on the Lord. Keep your eyes on the Lord and, and keep your eyes on your future inheritance, your future hope, and that you should live holy lives. Folks, that's the wisdom of God, not the wisdom of man. I wouldn't think of this. <laughs> at all. <laughs> all right. Look at verse 18. He continues the thought. He says, For as much as ye know 
that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. Now, to redeem someone actually means to buy them back, you know, pay, paying some sort of uh, payment, make, uh, or paying money or whatever, uh, to buy somebody back from bondage, from sa- slavery. It literally means here to pay a ransom. It's a ransom being paid. It's a similar term to what we will use for the money that is used to buy back a prisoner of war. It's the same type of idea here. But in this context, um, it is used for the money that, it's, that is used to buy back the freedom of somebody that is still imprisoned by sin, by their own sin, and that are still under the curse of the law. Now, Peter says here that you were not redeemed by silver and gold. Now, he's not talking about chunks of silver and gold lying around everywhere. Okay? Um, what, what he's talking about is silver and gold coins. He's talking about money. That's interesting, you know. I did some research on, on silver and gold because Peter says here, uh, ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold. So I wanted to see, is uh, silver and gold, are they corruptible? So I did some research, and that means I googled, <laughs> and I took the first result that I could find. And um, yeah, so for what it's worth. But I read there that there is actually no known natural substance that can destroy silver and gold. Interesting. <laughs> That's really interesting because Peter says that it's corruptible, you know, meaning that it can actually be destroyed naturally or, or, or some, in some way. And it will. You know, I referred earlier to, to the sermon I had about the second coming of Christ. You, you will remember that, those of you that were here that day. We looked at Second Peter chapter 3. And there in v- verse 10, he said that the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth and the works that are therein shall be burned up. So one day even silver and gold is going to melt away. The atoms are going to melt away of silver and gold. That was just something interesting. I just threw that in. Um, you can pay me later for that. <laughs> All right. So, put, so to put what Peter is saying here in verse 18 a little bit differently is that your freedom from sin and the curse of the law was not bought back by corruptible things like money. It can't. It doesn't matter how much money you have. I actually read throughout this weekend, I, I read a headline. I didn't read the story because I kind of figured I, I'll know what the story is going to be about. The headline was that Bill Gates is once again the richest man on earth. Okay, fine. That's good for him. But folks, even Mr. Gates, with all of his riches, you know, if he would sell all of his properties and whatever he has and sell all that, put the money in a big pile, it'll look like something that Scrooge McDuck did, you know. Uh, if, even if he gives all of his money and says, I want to give this as a payment for freedom from sin, uh, to pay for all of it, it won't be enough. It won't. You can't pay for your soul with money. Folks, what is the price for a soul? I mean, if you could pay for a soul to redeem it, how much would it be? Even the richest man on earth can't, can't fit that bill. Um, what, what will be the price tag? Now, I'll tell you. It literally is priceless. A soul is priceless because it is eternal. You know, anything that you can buy down here, anything, even if you want to buy a planet 
like some people want to do. You know, uh, you can do that. But all of it is temporal. It's all going to corrupt or it's going to be destroyed along with everything else, along with the universe um, at the second coming of Christ. But your soul is going to last forever. Forever. So how can you put a price tag on that? You can't. You can't. Look at verse 19. Well, let's get verse 18 again just to finish uh, Peter's sentence. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Is there anything more precious than the blood of Christ? I challenge you to name one thing. It's nothing. I mean, knowing who He is. He's God Almighty. He's the Creator. He's the one that, that spoke everything into existence by saying a few... He just said a few words and there it was. Poof. We have everything. Is there anything more precious than His blood? I think not. And that is the price that He paid for us. Look at First uh, Timothy chapter 2. You can leave your place in First in, uh, Peter. First Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy 2. We look at this price. Verse 5. He says here, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, to be testified in due time. There is no other way to salvation. None. Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all of us. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but the Bible tells us in John chapter 3 and verse 36 that he that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. The wrath of God abideth on him. Folks, if you are not saved, then the wrath of God is currently pointed right at you. There's nothing more scary than that. Nothing. It means that you are God's enemy. Do you get that? And he's going to deal with his enemies one day. He, he is definitely going to do that. But that is exactly why Jesus gave his precious life as a ransom for you. He made himself the object of God's wrath there on the cross when he died in your place on the cross. He died the death that you were supposed to die while carrying all of, all of your sin in his body. That's amazing. And so if, you, if you're putting your, your faith and your trust in Jesus alone, that his death is enough for you, that he paid for all of it and that he rose again from the dead, then you will also be saved. You will also be redeemed then. That is how this redemption gets applied to you. You will also be redeemed. It is this precious blood that has bought you then that then finally washes you clean. Paul told Timothy here in verse, fi in verse 5 that there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. 
Now, a mediator, for those of you that don't know, it's somebody that comes in between two opposing parties and they try to resolve conflict between them. Okay, we usually hear about that in the news. We hear about the CCMA, you know, between the, the um, all of these... What's a fuckbond in Engels? Union, thank you. I don't deal with those guys, thank God. Um, but... The, <laughs> um, between the unions and the companies, you know, that's the people coming in between. That's the mediator that comes in between. Now, Jesus is our mediator that came in between us and God because we are enemies. We were enemies, at least. And it is only Jesus that can resolve this conflict between God and a sinner. It's only Him to finally bring peace between them. And, it, and the only way that He could do that is by paying the ransom for our souls with his precious blood that we read about. It cost him his life. It cost him his life. Now, folks, we'll end here today. um, I'm not sure even how much time we have. I never look at the time um, for the first service. But let me just try and tie everything that we looked at together. Okay, somehow. First off, if you're not saved today, um, please know God wants to save you. He does not want to destroy you. He does not want to. But if you die an enemy of God, you will be destroyed one day. You will go to uh, what the Bible refers to as eternal damnation. It's an eternal destruction. Something that never, ever, 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 ever ends. But he already made all the provision necessary by sending Jesus to die on your behalf and to pay for your soul with his precious innocent blood. And if you're not sure how to respond to that, it's actually very simple. You don't even have to come see me for this, but you can if you want. But you just go to him in prayer. And you call on him to save you. Lord Jesus, I'm, I deserve to be punished. I'm a sinner. Please, please come save me. Thank you for what you've done. Basic, something like that, in your own words. But... He will then save you. The Bible promises to us, if you call on His name, He will save you. So you just go to Him in prayer on your own. Like I said, if you're not sure what to do, please come see me. You're welcome to. But then you put your faith and your trust completely in Jesus alone. It's not the words that save you of that prayer. It's not that. Those words come from a position of, I'm going to trust you with everything. That is where the salvation comes. It is putting your faith and your trust in Christ alone. That is when that sure foundation gets built in, into you. And that's where you start that new life with, it, with everything new and you can start building upon that. So go to Him. Stop trying to free your soul um, with your money or with your good works or whatever you have. Stop doing that. Stop thinking that because people like you that, well, you must be saved because hey, everybody likes me. No. There are children of God that I don't like. <laughs> That's just how it works. That's not a measure of salvation. Folks, your good works won't help you. But then, let's keep with the context of our text here. It was written to Christians uh, in First Peter. So, Christians, whenever you find yourself in a position of being persecuted because of your faith, Uh, in the Lord, or even during any sort of hardship that you may be going through, keep your eyes on the Lord. Keep your eyes on the Lord. Stop looking at the things around you. It is not worth it. These things are temporal. It's going to fade away. It's going to be done. 
You know, in a hundred years, yeah, in a hundred years, you're not going to be here. You're not. It's going to be done with. You're going to be with the Lord if you're saved. So keep your eyes on Him. Keep your eyes on that eternal prize, that eternal glory that we're going to receive from Him. That is worth living for. Remember to live holy before God because He redeemed you with the precious blood of Christ and He will be judging you at the end of this life on what you did with your life. Please, please remember this. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that we may call you Father. Thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you for paying that immense price for our souls. We're not worth it, Lord. We're not. You are. And, Lord, I am, I am baffled by the love that you have for mankind. But Lord, thank you so much for what you've done for us. Thank you that you call us your sons, your children. Thank you, Lord, that uh, we can look forward to one day seeing you, being with you forever. Oh, Lord, what a wonderful day that will be when you come to fetch your bride. We so look forward to that. Please help us, Lord. There are those of us here um, today going through very rough times. Help us to keep our eyes on you, whether it's going good or bad. Please, Lord, remind us. Please let, don't let us get so busy that we um, forget or, or that we lose sight of you and of eternity, that we just build this wood, hay, and stubble. Lord, that's wasted effort. Please help us to make that eternal um, deposit, that eternal, um, or work towards that eternal prize, Lord. Not for us, not so that people may even say in heaven, look what a good job I did, but for you, Lord, because you're more than worth it. Thank you for all that you do, Lord. We ask that you will please bless the rest of this day. Bless our fellowship, Lord. Please bless the next service as well. And thank you for all that you do. Thank you for being with us. Amen.